0: i pushed the starting date for my starter back to 1893 and a gold mining town in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, but that doesn't answer the question of how it got there. That meant going back to, okay, so who made the first sourdough starter? Well, who made the first bread? And, and now suddenly I'm back 10,000 years.
1: This is The Sourdough Podcast, the show about the innovators, leaders, and creative trailblazers in our sourdough community and the stories behind the bread. On this episode of The Sourdough Podcast, I talk with author, historian, and baker, Dr. Eric Palin. In his new book, Sourdough Culture, Eric investigates the origins of his own sourdough starter by exploring the history of sourdough from ancient to modern times. Eric helps shed light on some of my own misunderstandings of bread history, answers your listener questions, and proves to us that when it comes to people's opinions on good bread, there's nothing new under the sun. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our latest contributors to the podcast. Mo McKenna in Boulder, Colorado, Janine Flanagan, baking at Grain Bakery in Southeast Florida, Andrea Herson in Ellensburg, Washington, Michael Winlinger, cottage baking in Charlotte, North Carolina, Stefan Priestler in the UK, and Allie Jean White, who just opened Matriarch Bread Co. in Morgan Hill, California. Thank you all so much for your generous contributions and kind messages and for helping make this episode of the Sourdough Podcast possible. Your support and encouragement really just keep me wanting to come back week after week uh, doing more episodes. So thank you so much. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please consider contributing any amount by visiting the thesourdoughpodcast.com and clicking on donate. You might even get a shout out on the podcast. And now here's my interview with Dr. Eric Palin. All right, my guest today is Dr. Eric Pallant. Eric is a two-time Fulbright Scholar, award-winning professor, and the Christine Scott Nelson Endowed Professor of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Allegheny College. His research has been published in magazines such as Gastronomica, Sierra, and Science. He is also a serious amateur baker. He lives in Meadville, Pennsylvania with his wife, Kat, and four active sourdough starters. Eric is joining me today to talk about his new book Sourdough Culture: A History of Bread Making from Ancient to Modern Bakers. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Oh, it's my my pleasure, right? The opportunity to geek out on bread for a while. Let's do it. Yeah, totally.
1: Well, I couldn't think of a better audience to do that than my own here. We got some major sourdough nerds listening to this podcast um, me being the, the foremost. So I'm excited to dig in <laughs> with you. Terrific. Maybe we could start with, uh, maybe you just tell us a little bit about your own history with sourdough and and what kind of prompted you to study and write about it.
0: I was just talking to somebody else about this Who said like, I'm a baker for a long time and I've been a yeast guy forever. And then I, I think this must be true of a lot of us who make sourdoughs. You, you somebody get you started, and there's no going back.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: once you start with sourdough, it's just you have this living ecosystem of, of organisms that become part of your household. You are responsible for keeping them alive. And in so many ways, they're responsible for keeping you alive. And you really get to, to be family. And that happened to me. I was baking bread sort of intermittently. And somebody offered me a, a sourdough starter right after I discovered like, Oh my God, this is amazing bread. Like, how did you make it? And responsive, you know, all of us sourdough bakers is well, it's a sourdough bread. I just made it. And would you like some of my starter? I, you know, very few of us are proprietary about our starters. It's like, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to give you some. And then I spent like a very long time experimenting, right? You, you think, okay, I'll try it. And then you, you I, at least I don't know about you, but I made a lot of mistakes. And that's how I learned to get. Better and how I got to know my starters and, like I said, there, there hasn't been any turning back. Yeah. How long
1: had you been baking before you th- saw this as something you wanted to focus your studies on your research on?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the eye-opening moment for me was I got this starter and and once you have a starter, you you sort of have to make bread regularly or your starter poops out on you, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm making bread regularly and I have young children after that who suddenly are not young children and they're like big teenage kids who eat a lot of bread yeah. and which was great right because I could make as much bread as I wanted and it would disappear and but one morning I woke up and I thought I- I've had this starter longer than I've had my kids <laughs> you know my kids are are in their late teens and this starter has been with me for 20 years and and wow. so so at that point I'm thinking this is older than my like. How many cell phones have I gone through? And, like, <laughs> yeah. my, my refrigerator is not this old. My microwave's not exactly. this old. Like, there's nothing I own that's this old. And so I started to be curious, and I cold called the person who gave me the starter I hadn't talked to in 20 years, and I said, "I don't know if you remember me," and the time you gave me a starter, and they're like, "Of course I remember you. Of course I remember that starter." <laughs> and I asked them. Where did they get their start? Where did it come from? And they pushed the date back another like 15 years and said, this is who we got it from. And when I finally tracked down the person in Indiana who gave it to them, who gave it to me in Pennsylvania, he said, Oh, that starter you're using is from the cripple Creek gold rush of 1893 (laughs) from the Rocky mountains of Colorado. Wow. And then I'm thinking, okay, I've got to figure out how did it get to Colorado? How old is this thing? How old can it be? And that becomes, well, a book.
1: Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. yeah. It's. I think every sourdough enthusiast has those same questions. Like, uh, where did <laughs> this come from? How did it get started? What's the history? I mean, for me, it was like, I, I thought of sourdough was a flavor of bread before uh-huh. I stumbled into How it came into existence and that it's the original bread uh, source and and then yeah for many people that's a rabbit hole we get pulled into you know I
0: know what a great rabbit hole and and then I don't know if you've wondered about this but I'm I'm still wondering about it after all this research is does it matter Uh yeah if it's this this really precious heirloom does it make the bread any better Mm mm-hmm
1: There's so many questions and what, so what prompted you that to to say, I mean, do I understand it? like one of your your Fulbright scholarships was for the purpose of researching sourdough?
0: Yes, that's an interesting story just by by itself, but I, I was told when I was applying for a Fulbright scholarship, these are extremely competitive, whatever you do, don't apply to an English speaking country. (laughs) <laughs> because everybody wants to go to an english speaking country, and if you do apply to an english speaking country, don't apply to England because everybody wants to go to england and I thought, okay, for a variety of reasons, most importantly is my wife was working and needed to be within five time zones of where she was working. There weren't many places that fit that <laughs> that category, and so I thought, okay i'm gonna go big or or, or go home i'm gonna I'm gonna tell these academic purists that I wanted to study the origins of sourdough and the impact of the industrial revolution on basically making sourdough disappear and be displaced by yeast. And they're either gonna look at this and think, no, <laughs> who does this guy think he's he, He's kidding? Like he's gonna study sourdough bread. And the opposite happened is they, they not only gave me a scholarship, but this woman who ran the program when I finally landed, stole jet lag, came flying up to me. And you know she's just below a duchess. She has an OBE order of oh, the British wow. Empire and said, oh my goodness, my sourdough guy has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they bought it. That's and and then, What year was this? This was three years ago. Oh, just three. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're definitely, this is, your research is definitely kind of riding this new wave of interest. I, right. I guess- the newest would be post uh, pandemic wave, but the, right. the pre pandemic wave that many of my listeners are part of, I would be right when you started your research. Uh, I love how you wove your story of your own starter into the history of sourdough in general, and it kind of it really gives a, a, a strong narrative to kind of come back to and, and connect our, our own starters to, to the greater history of sourdough. Can we jump into the history and, and kind of the origins of bread making?
0: Sure. And how I got there is, okay, I, I've pushed the starting date from my starter probably back to 1893 and a gold mining town in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, mm. but that doesn't answer the question of how it got there. And, and so th- that's when I realized I've got to start at the very beginning while I'm working backwards to see... Where does my starter come from? Can I work forward and create a path mm. to where those two lines are going to intersect? And that meant going back to okay, so who made the first sourdough starter, and then well, who made the first bread? And and now suddenly I'm back ten thousand years to the origins of agriculture. Yeah, and and the the, the very first. I hand it to the archaeologists who can put together these stories of I find some, you know they find some seeds in an archaeological excavation these seeds are clearly somehow different from wild versions of wheat and oats and rye and they're being selected by early gatherers because they grow better they produce more calories and i'm sure because they taste better they make better breads you know with wheat and then you can with uh vetch and with uh, legumes and things like that and so mm-hmm. Uh, there is a question about, okay, so so how does that even happen? Who, who figures out that this is going to be bread and not just porridge? Yeah. um, The best we can tell is that for a couple of thousand years, they probably mostly ate porridge. Um, You know, you take seeds, you might mash them up with water and you might heat them up, but, but this is all taking place in the fertile crescent in, Mm in Israel, Syria, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, and, uh, uh, I'm sure everybody listening to this knows that if you take porridge and put it out at that climate and wait a day or two, it's going to start bubbling, mm-hmm. right? You're going to have bacteria and yeast that are going to really take off in that warm, warm climate. And uh, somebody let one of those porridges bake right next to the fire.
1: How many tens of thousands of years back does this stage go?
0: So, you know, th- what I hand it to is the archaeologists keep pushing back those dates, right? It used to be like six or 8,000, and now they're finding pretty good evidence that <clears throat> at least there were flatbreads being made. Like, th- they're finding flour um, and stones that are flat that are that have burn marks on them, which means somebody was laying out something that had been flattened onto a hot stone mm. and... And so we would call that bread though not necessarily, we have no way of knowing if it's leavened mm-hmm. or not. And so the question of, we know there are breads that are probably 15,000 years old or older. Um, the question is when it becomes intentional, like I'm gonna let this dough bubble away and then, um, and then cook it and then get that oven spring that comes with flours that have wheat in them, yeah. can, uh, have gluten in them. That's probably four, five, six thousand years ago.
1: It's funny because reading your book, it, it shown some light on a lot of gray areas in my understanding of bread history, and I think just the origins of it would be one of them. Where I and I think I don't think I'm alone in thinking. Uh, probably many people have the same idea that bread started with the Egyptians, you know, and like they either. Right discovered it on accident or on purpose or was something somehow associated with beer. Exactly, yeah. That would be 4,000, 5,000 years ago. It would okay. be, I think most people's association with that. But you, you're. I think you said they found, again, flatbread, maybe going back 23,000 years ago in, yeah. in Northern Israel.
0: Right, they just keep pushing back those dates, right? But you're right, and you know, the Egyptian, what we do know for sure because we have the equivalent of uh, Egyptian Instagram, which is the hieroglyphics yeah. you know, and the paintings. We know for sure they're making bread and they're making beer, and that that is what's keeping all those guys building pyramids, you know, fed and watered. <laughs> you know, so and, and 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 recently they're 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 able to uh, sort of extract. From some of these beer urns from the pyramids, some of the Saccharomyces cerevisiae from there, and make fresh beer. The presumption is, if you're making beer, you're also making bread the Mm. same way. But because of the heat of the oven uh, of making bread, that the no yeast survives that temperature, and there's Mm. just no way to prove beyond a shadow. So, I this is what I love is you know we're talking about the interplay of of cultures like this is the ancient egyptian cultures sourdough cultures um and 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 science like you really have to understand the science to try and figure out what's what's going on
1: yeah um i think i remember a few it was a year or two ago uh, some i think you mentioned in your book but uh i saw it play out on instagram or something where somebody you know scraped some yeast off of a (laughs) a bowl and and tried to harvest it and and grow it and then turn it into uh modern egyptian bread with this ancient strand of yeast
0: yeah exactly yeah he just made a big big splash with that the the guy who did that uh, his name escapes me this second but he he was the inventor of xbox oh okay so So yeah yeah he had the time and the money Uh, to sort of put all that together Uh uh-huh
1: so you're so Egyptians, we, we know that they made bread, but we don't necessarily know that they leavened it. Why is that?
0: So, all right. So we know they made beer, right? We know they made bread from the pictures that they, they left us, which is as close as we can come to a recipe. We know that they made bread because they poured doughs into molds and, and uh, around the temples of Giza you know, there are like five hundred thousand broken clay molds from bread so from which these guys the archaeologists can calculate how many people were being fed for for how long um we but but how do you prove that they were letting the breads rise before they bake them is is just a very difficult mm. thing to do. We, we presume that they did. It would probably be hard in that climate again to prevent a wheat mm. bread from rising. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if without refrigeration, you know. Um, but but there is no. I haven't found. It's not that there isn't. I haven't found proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Egyptians were making sourdough bread. That sort of has to wait for the Romans, exactly. Uh, yeah, the Roman Empire that follows
1: yeah so that that was interesting i mean we, we want to assume that it was leavened, but we can't actually prove it yeah and so a push pushes up pushing us up to the roman era um obviously they wrote down everything and,
0: exactly exactly and so we know
1: for sure that they were leavening bread yeah um you give uh one of my favorite examples that you kind of go into was um looking at pompeii the ruins of pompeii and right. just it's basically like a frozen uh a, a time set in history just like for all of us to look at and see how things would just stopped in at that moment in yeah. time yeah can you tell us a little bit more about what we learn or know from pompeii
0: yeah so that combination of having romans who write down everything <laughs> um and uh as you say uh, a day in the life of the city of pompeii that suddenly um, is buried instantaneously in ash from uh, Mount Vesuvius um, lets us put together that there were bakeries there and we even have some idea of the menus that were in the bakeries and what kinds of breads they were making. And there are even some uh, uh, essentially overcooked breads because they've been through <laughs> a volcano <Yeah. laughs> that, 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 that have survived uh, that era and and this is in the book but uh, this speaks to me uh, for sure that that they they had jelly donuts um, <laughs> really in in ancient rome and it's like oh my goodness like you could go to work in the morning and then on your way home from work strap on your sandals and uh, go pick up a dozen jelly donuts on the way home it's like <laughs> yeah some things were good even back then
1: yeah oh he had this picture in there where it's just yeah it's exactly that it's just a, almost looks like a modern day bakery, like you know it is a stone oven but it looks mit- like many stone brick ovens that i've seen today
0: they and haven't changed they, they haven't changed, changed.
1: exactly right. right yeah well i i saw the first time that was really fascinating were those um the mills that were right next right outside of the oven right. uh and you really have to see it look at a picture to really understand how they mill the flour but it was really uh cool to just see you know, I think every every culture, I mean, the way they've milled flour or ground it or smashed it, is, it's all, everybody does it different. And so this was a really unique take on kind of right. funneling grain down these stone uh, funnels. And then it seemed like it was spinning around another stone. Anyway, yeah. I, re- no, no, I wish your picture. listeners...
0: I wish your listeners could see your hand motions um, right now because it, it is the only way to picture it. It's is is this uh, this this shape of uh, a funnel top and then sort of an inverted funnel bottom, but versus
1: two like flat discs, you know, yeah. that would yeah. grind right. our flower. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it, it was really really fascinating. Um, so this kind of brings us to uh, one of my first listener questions. From Ohai Crumb, she asked if ancient people sifted their wheat to make white flour ever. And uh, I seem to recall that be something the Romans specifically wrote about.
0: Right. The Romans did and the Greeks did. And and then and ever thereafter from ancient Rome on, it becomes a class thing. Mm. Which is, mm-hmm. it, it, it takes... Uh, you, you need to essentially have silk or or something, some very fine fabric that will let coarse matter through and keep finer, uh, you know, the endosperm uh, 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 above, and, and uh, that takes time and money and labor. And so if you're really wealthy and you have a lot of Roman coins and you ate white bread and high-class white bread, and if you're low income and poor you ate coarse coarsely brown whole meal
1: bread yeah and that practice pretty much you know perpetuated up until the modern era and now it's reversed you it know <laughs> right, yeah we, we, we've talked about that before how it's you know it's still kind of a class thing where the the rich people eat the 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 twelve dollar artisan whole grain loaves, <laughs> and everybody else gets uh, white
0: bread. You white know. bread. It's funny how it's just all right, yeah. it's just reversed itself. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. So we, you know, y- you talked briefly about kind of the Roman era and and how much. Um, of course, uh, the story of Jesus is is in that uh, time period, and and how much metaphor. and and parables jesus used that were you know centered on bread um of course that reminded me of um peter reinhart who actually wrote your foreword for the book yes Yes. uh it it reminded me of his ted talk i don't know if you've seen that uh from july 20 or 2008. um it just you know he just talked about the kind of the the life Cycle. cycles of life right. and death. And, and and it's just so easy to see that the parallels with like uh, the gospel story of Jesus and his life, death and burial. Um, I don't think that was intentional, but it's, it's such a clear metaphor. Well, so,
0: but, but that's the question that, you know, at that, the question I, I, I want to raise is to us, uh, that sort of the resurrection of, of, of Christ is, is, um, is, is all, it's not all, it's metaphor. It's, it's, uh, uh, but, but when, when, when Christ says essentially my, my body is bread, nobody would have questioned the only bread around was sourdough bread. Mm-hmm. And, and and the idea that of course, sourdough bread lives forever, lives for eternity. And, and that it, it does resurrect itself would have just been second nature to anybody of the period in ways that it's no longer
1: yeah you know? yeah and thus it's, it's such a, a great use of a, a, an illustration that for us we have to we, have we to can only access it. it maybe if we if we've played around with sourdough
0: yeah I agree.
1: I or have a theologian explain to us <laughs> i wanted to take a quick break from our interview to share with you some exciting news I was recently invited to join the board of the Bakers in Need Fund, a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded by Tyler Kartner at Wiremonkey. This fund was created to help bread bakers suffering financial duress due to the coronavirus, and since the start of the pandemic, the Bakers in Need Fund has given a total of 40 grants totaling over $10,000 to our baking community. When the crisis is over, the fund will remain to support Bread Bakers in Need. We love the bread baking community and being a part of it and want to give back. If you'd like to learn more about the Bakers in Need Fund, make a donation or apply for a grant, please go to bakersinneed.org. Now, back to the show. So, um, yeasted breads. Um, this was another area that um, you spent a lot of time in that, again, I just I really did not have this uh, understanding um, Uh, Much like my misconception of the history of bread, I had this kind of inaccurate timeline in my mind. Uh, Basically, it goes like, you know, Egyptians, as we've already discussed, uh, didn't discover it, but uh, it went Egyptians discovered it or stumbled upon sourdough. And then around the year 1900, uh, it was industrialized yeast um, from there on out. And so I kind of missed this whole period of uh, brewer's yeast. Where uh, yeah. it is, it was a, a real um, force to be reckoned with for a few hundred years. It seems like um, at least
0: you know. And again, it's one of those things that's it's it's really hard to nail down. Is that um, there? There's there's some evidence. Well, let's go back to what we were talking about before. That the Egyptians may well have simply been using that brewers yeast. They may have been making beer on one side, taking the foam and. Using yeah. that to leaven their bread, although, in my opinion, even if they were, the beer they were making isn't pure yeasted beer. It's wild mm-hmm. sourdough beer. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. There
0: are bacterias in the, in those in the beer they were making, so it's not very different from a sourdough. Um, uh, in that regard, there, there's there's some evidence that the Romans were using beer. That gets lost the middle ages, the dark ages there's there's even more evidence that that at least some bread is being made and leavened with 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 beer beer yeast, but there really isn't a cookbook where anybody has written down mm-hmm. a recipe for anything until eighteen fifty wow and 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 so um, you really have to wait till people are kind of urbanized and literate. And and so professional that that young girls aren't just raised in their mothers' kitchens, learning the craft at their it's, mother's. It's kitchen. such
1: a huge gap, though, from like Romans to 1850, where we know people are making bread and beer, but we don't know how. You know,
0: right, right,
1: it right. Seems we, like such a, a loss of. Uh, it is a
0: loss, and that's what makes you know. You got a thousand years of European history, where where basically nobody has time or the energy. To write down anything, right? You know, uh, except for a, a handful of monks, right? And 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 Christians who are writing down theological things, mm, but, mm-hmm. but for a thousand years, the basics of life, which is like, how, you know, like what are their shoes made out of? You know, did they brush their teeth? You know, all these. <laughs> well, and, and there's, they, there's
1: nothing more daily or routine than and then making bread.
0: Exactly, which 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 are the things we write down least. Exactly. Right? Have you ever read an article on how to tie your shoes? Yeah. <laughs> right? You do it every day. Everybody mm-hmm. does it every, every day. So it's not worth writing down. And so here we are um, waiting for 1850 when people are saying, here's how you make mm-hmm. yeast. Here's how you make bread.
1: That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's like, yeah. how could we not know something that's so foundational to, you know, it, it, civilization? In some ways, precise,
0: precisely because it is so foundational.
1: Mhm. So we have brewers yeast really playing a significant, or well, maybe you can break that down. What, how do you, how does brewers yeast and the use of it uh, affect kind of the evolution that gets us to modern bread?
0: Right. So, so let's. I mean, this is wonderful because this group of listeners will get it in ways that I, I don't have to explain it quite like I do to other people. But so sourdough has. Yeast in it, and the yeasts are wild, and um, there are now dozens of different species and strains of yeast, but there are a handful that are pretty common. But they also have bacteria that provide those sour flavors, um, uh, lactobacillus that make acetic acid or lactic acid, and a variety of other chemical compounds, and. Um, we distinguish that from commercial yeast, which is one species of yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, sort of cleaned out of everything else, right? <clears throat> everything else is, is sterilized out of it. And I, I I think of it as the, the difference between sort of really good ecological agriculture, which has multiple species of mm-hmm. different plants growing, and you know, mm-hmm. this hodgepodge of stuff and 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 Big industrial American agriculture, which is a monocrop okay. that goes on for miles, and so so that's how I distinguish sort of yeast or commercial yeast from sourdough until sense. really 1900. So your timeline is is really right on, Michael. Um, n- nobody could make yeast that was purified or or had eliminated all the bacteria. So even if you were using brewers yeast, it was it still had sour flavors. It wasn't okay. totally reliable. It wasn't totally predictable in the way that you know Fleischmann's and Red Star yeast is today. And now we're talking about you know corporations that that are growing Olympic swimming pool size. <laughs> you know uh, um, vats of 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 genetically selected. Saccharomyces that, cerevisiae. That, again, for 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 this group of listeners, is so intentionally powerful mm-hmm. and reliable that it, it seems sacrilegious to me. But but that a, <laughs> a, a a yeasted bread in an hour you have to punch, right? You actually yeah. have to knock it out. It's so strong. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, sourdough bread is uh, is 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 a gentler, slower more wonderful process of course
1: yeah well and that's you know it all comes down to taste and, and preference and, and and when so we're, we're kind of bridging the gap here from like the middle ages and brewer's yeast and and it coming up to the industrial and scientific revolution right. and uh it's you know I, part in this, in these chapters of the book what really stood out to me was that even as far back as like the late 1700s, people were, were very opinionated about their bread and, and bread production, <laughs> uh, just like today. And you know, yeah. everyone seemed to believe that their view was the most enlightened view. <laughs> right. And um, there's an example on page 112, I'll read real quick, um, from a guy named Louis-Sebastian Mercier you know, he was convinced science was the way forward for bread uh, to progress the art of baking. And he said, you know, making wheat into bread is a chemical operation that must be enlightened by chemists. Blind routine, he says, de- denatures the process. And he scoffs at every commoner still consuming the same bread, quote, just as their grandfathers ate it. And, that <laughs> you know, it just it was like this is, you know, late 1700s. And yet. He has this disdain for uh, tradition and uh, really puts science on a pedestal. And, and whereas we almost are in the exact opposite, this, the, uh, us sourdough geeks are, we are trying to recreate the, the bread of our grandfathers. And, uh, and we're trying to build those routines of practice um, that he says denatures the process. So. Yeah, you know, there's nothing new under the sun here. It, this, this people have always had opinions about bread. Um, how often, I wonder, you did this kind of like dichotomy of science versus tradition, new versus old, um, come up in your research? Uh,
0: it, it, uh, all the time, right? It, it, I, you said it beautifully, which is. People have their opinions and <laughs> they are not to be dissuaded um, ab- about what they think good bread means and uh a- a- as we'll, we'll probably get to this shortly. it becomes highly politicized mm-hmm. you know uh, over what what constitutes good bread and what 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 why it's worth eating or not worth eating. Um, you know, in, in their defense of Mercier, you know, after a thousand years of 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 church doctrine sort of ruling the world, um, <clears throat> having a little science is probably uh, a little uh, a good thing to open up <laughs> the, the, the way we say the world. Though I, I agree with you 100 percent, which is to say I don't agree with anything in that quote. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So, you know, we have. Um moving the timeline along um, we have you know, here in the United States we have our own history we have our own cultural history when it comes to bread bread's you know a global phenomenon but when it comes to our country and our culture it's been a, it's been uh, affected by certain historical uh, events and so um, actually one of my listener questions it's uh, from it's Megan uh, she asked the sourdough history in the United States. Um, how did it get here, and and do we have our own style? If so, what formed it? And so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit. And this is kind of where exactly your your Cripple Creek, you know, starter comes back into the narrative. Right. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, American history when it comes to bread?
0: I, I'd be happy to, uh, but I want to first expand America. To uh, Canada and the middle part of the country, and so so what we have is a, a country that's essentially settled on the eastern seaboard, the thirteen colonies, um, by British settlers. But uh, Canada and the central part of the what of North America, what's going to become the Louisiana Purchase in eighteen o three, when the French give over a third of the continent to 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 uh, Thomas. Jefferson. It's a British perspective. It's a French perspective on bread. And and those two Mm -hmm. cultures, it's a very large part of the book, have really, really different views on, really on fermentation, Mm. right? The the British are um, and have been since, as you indicated, seventeen hundred. sort of really uh, uh, about industrial efficiency and about beer, which is a, a, a comparatively simple product um that that you go and clap with your mates down at the pub and uh. and and bread is something you just sort of eat in order to keep working in the factories and the french are about fermentation slow regional fermentations cheese mm. like every region has its own cheese its mm-hmm. own wine and its own bread and 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 that is the french are reputed to be the the, the the largest consumers of bread in the world, they were eating three pounds of bread a day and it had to be good bread. Mm. You know, it was sourdough bread and they were making bread from sourdough starters. And it was this artisanal, um, well-respected profession. They carry that tradition to Canada and the middle part of the, of North America. while the British carry the tradition of, okay, let's just make beer and bread and get on with business <laughs> yeah. to the, to the East coast. And, and that, then overlays on you have natives who are living in North America yeah. who are maize, you know, corn culture, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and maize has no gluten, um, so it's really ideal for making a tortilla, you
1: mm-hmm. know, a,
0: a flatbread, flatbread, uh-huh. flatbread, not something that's going to rise. What what I what I do love, and in some ways, this is I think the best part of America is um, <clears throat> how. North Americans slowly developed their own cuisine. And and, and that in in New England, wheat was really tough to grow. You know, it's wet, it's damp, it's cold. And so you couldn't reliably grow wheat in any huge quantities. Um, And so you were growing rye and oats, which are much more Mm. uh, tolerant of those conditions. And then you were relying on indigenous knowledge, which had different kinds of corn for every part of the country. Which was and a then, completely
1: new grain for absolutely Europeans.
0: Right. And and first generation settlers were like, this is pig food. We <laughs> eat corn. And by the second and third generation, they were inventing brand new recipes that exactly. were combinations of. Rye, what they called rye and engine, uh, which was uh, a term that they referred to corn mm. as ancient food. But but they, they were, if w- what was available in the market, they were putting together in these new breads mm-hmm. that are rye and corn and wheat in the proportions that were there. And so that becomes a kind of American tradition of uh, of putting things together and figuring it out on the fly. That again, metaphorically speaking, I think we can see in the in the bread that it made,
1: yeah, well, you could say you know cornbread's uh, more American than apple pie, you know like it goes that right. deep to uh, the roots of of America
0: and well so uh, is so is so is apple pie, which is <laughs> you know in the old country they, they, there might have been pies but 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 in North America they, they figured out how to make crusts out of these things, and what was available were 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 huckleberries and raspberries and you know molasses and you know like you start off making mincemeat pies which you did in England and uh in North America you start reducing the amount of mincemeat and adding greater quantities of berries and suddenly you have you know an American invention of dessert pie. <laughs> well I, I
1: didn't read that in your book but that's uh something <laughs> just for me to look into uh they're I don't know if there's sourdough in in apple pie but i guess you could make a sourdough crust oh you can it's
0: really good yeah
1: well you do uh, you do include a boston brown bread recipe which i i'm not familiar i'm a west coaster you know so that's not i don't i'm not familiar with these old traditional east coast breads but it just sounds amazing it's like a third corn a third rye a third wheat and uh i I really want, I mean, and, and then a lot of other, you know, sourdough, but also molasses and raisins. Right. And it just sounds absolutely delicious. Um, and so I really loved how you, as we're going through this narrative of history and, and interlacing your Cripple Creek starter history, you're also putting in recipes th- of, uh, you know, bread throughout the millennium and American history, historical bread recipes. And it really kind of brought those the history to life, you know, in a tangible yeah. way. Right. Um, let's see where, let me, let's see how much time we got. About uh, 20 minutes here. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we got, um, we've got some interesting characters, you know, kind of in the, in the middle <laughs> years of American history. We've got the inventor of the graham cracker and uh, the writer of Mary Had a Little Lamb. They kind of occupy... Uh, uh a fascinating chapter you could call it in american bread history <laughs> could, do, do you could touch on those two characters briefly
0: yeah they're nutcases aren't they <laughs> <laughs> so so um the, so, so, you know the great discoveries that come with this book are, are guys like sylvester graham who uh, uh after whom graham crackers are named and and Sylvester Graham, along with Louisa May Alcott's father, John Alcott, um, helped found something called the Vegetarian League or something like that. But, but Graham is this, is this Puritan, like he's just this religious fanatic who, who um, barnstorms around the East Coast for a decade saying essentially nobody should eat good quality bread, (laughs) uh, which in those days was white bread. Nobody should eat anything with spices in it. Nobody should eat uh, meat or consume alcohol or anything at all that might excite uh, 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 your sense of smell or your sense of taste because the great scourge of North America, according to him, that he was trying to uh, obliterate was masturbation among boys. Um, and he felt that if they got overstimulated by having something that sort of tasted good, <laughs> tasted good exactly, um, they were going to have um, nocturnal emissions or worse. And you know, he he writes books about this, and 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 has enough of an influence that he he he's uh, he's attacked by bakers. Who 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 are feeling the pressure on their business that that that, that uh, consumers are buying less bread in order to protect their boys and men from uh, really unusual <laughs> thoughts? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. This is the guy who, who uh, after whom graham crackers are named. You know. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. I, there's this a sexual. It's like we shouldn't excite. You know, uh, the organs. In our you know in our stomach because they're with good food because they're too close to other organs that can get absolutely. us into trouble
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah and then uh mary hale was it mary hale
0: or uh yeah and and she she's uh equally uh strong-willed <laughs> uh, um strong-willed enough that like as a widow she raises five kids and 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 does write mary had a little lamb and is, is thought to be responsible for essentially inventing the holiday of thanksgiving yeah um and 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 she she also thinks that uh, bread should be politicized and and that men of the late 1800s were were going to be if if left to their own devices were going to go out drinking and hanging out in bars and 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 playing with women and the only salvation for them and therefore all of america was for their wives and daughters to make homemade bread yes
1: <laughs> exactly so it's you know it's just again back to this old old as time tale as old as time uh, you know people have opinions about bread that are you know based in science or religion. Not. It isn't, We're or not. We're not. Yes. not. But they hold them just as strongly as people Absolutely. hold those opinions today. Um, Absolutely. So that kind of gets us into like the mid, the, 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 the late 19th and early 20th century where the U S in the U S where sourdough is looking like it's on its way out. Like it's going right. extinct except for, uh, as you say, kind of in these parts of the country where, You know are kind of the wild west and uh, Alaska san francisco cripple creek these gold mining towns uh, areas regions, uh, they don't have the technology Yet established or the transportation to get fresh yeast. And so there's this, uh Place in time and history where sourdough is the way you can only way you can make bread. Um, but as you say, it almost goes extinct. You know, like it just barely survives the, the late nineteenth and twentieth, early twentieth century. Uh, would you, would you say, it, you know, it's who who's more to blame, the baker or, or the consumer, at this point in history?
0: Um, at the, at the risk of giving you too academic an answer, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of academic answers. But but in this case, I I think. Um, What's irresistible to bakers is uh, profit, mm. right? And, and uh, as a sourdough baker, and all of our listeners here are sourdough bakers is it takes a lot of time uh, and a lot of attention a lot of care to make sourdough bread and uh, to push a yeasted bread through a machine that um, can turn out bread in three or four hours rather than two or three days. Yeah. Um, that just lowers the price and you can churn out a lot more bread a lot more quickly. And, uh, consumers are going to pay less and learn to, um, associate what, what shows up in a shiny plastic bag with bread. Um, even though it's, it's, uh, not related to what our grandfathers mm. ate. And, and then there's an advertising campaign that goes with it that, that persuades people, this is good for you. Exactly. Right? This, this is healthy this is this is technology this is science this is the future mm-hmm. uh, and and like a lot of advertising campaigns it's not really based in much <laughs> other than profit yeah
1: another another part that i thought was really interesting was kind of like the us immigrant experience of of maybe second generation uh children of of immigrants who know they they bring their history and culture of of these kind of european eastern european rye breads and and whole grain breads and sourdoughs but by the second generation they kind of want to you know disassociate themselves with with the old country and and be you know be a part of this new american culture and kind of separate you know and
0: it's still true i've talked to children of immigrants you know in the last few years you ask them, what's your favorite food and they'll tell you, it's, you know, well, I love KFC, you know, I, mm-hmm. love, I love McDonald's and, and they're still eating the foods that their parents, you know, made back in Somalia or yeah. Nepal or something like that, but their favorite foods are American foods. Mm-hmm.
1: So we have, yeah, obviously it's probably not the baker or the consumer is probably, obviously always kind of probably a mix of both. Sure. But, um Well, I I I really enjoyed the book, Eric, and you know I think again the major takeaways I was like for me was you know bread is always evolving, Uh, trends come and go. There's always going to be a new fad, a a new set of opinions on that fad. Uh, Certainly that applies to like you know the last few waves of, of sourdough enthusiasm. But, uh, you know, as I read, as I learned through reading your book, that's nothing new, you know, and um, (laughs) that story is as old as time. So, you know, bake the bread that makes you happy. Um, You you say it, you say it really well uh, towards the end of your book when you say, if I may quote you, uh, a bread is made, a bread, sorry, a bread made with sourdough bears more than 6,000 years of history. Deep inside its warm interior there is love, which like the culture it comes from is best if shared. So I'll I'll, uh, leave it there as far as um, my questions and and commentary. Is there anything you might want to add to uh, our conversation, Eric, before I let you go?
0: Well, I'm gonna just briefly uh, turn this around and ask you, um, why do you think um, of all the things people could have taken up when COVID suddenly locked us in our rooms? Sourdough was like this wave that showed up, not just in the U S but everywhere. Right? <laughs> yeah. Know, why it's... sourdough, right? It could have been knitting. It could have been almost anything. Yeah. You know, it could have been solitaire, right. But it was sourdough bread. Why? I, you know, I, I feel like maybe it, 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 it
1: kind of been on the rise for a while so to speak like uh interest in the topic was already kind of peaking or or kind of maybe a second or third wave depending on when you uh start timing it but like there's already interest people were uh, you know experimenting with this you know the the sourdough podcast and people have been writing cookbooks about sourdough for you know uh, before the pandemic and then i think you know i think part of it was there was no You know bread in the supermarkets for a while i recall you know um and and so people obviously are are stuck at home they can't go out to the grocery stores and and like you, you 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 illustrate in the book it's there's just nothing more like homey or or natural than baking bread at home and and you can't go and talk to your neighbor per se, or, or hug them much less or, or go to school or church or grocery store, people, places where you're going to see people, but you can, and and you're forced to be at home. And so you have this opportunity maybe to to make bread and then maybe go drop it on the porch of your neighbor, you know? And I, I, know I, I did that and, and, uh, You know, I I had just moved to this town. We're living in now like a year before the pandemic and so Yeah bread kind of just was our way through the pandemic and kept us connected to our community. So That's that's my take, you know, and
0: lovely. I like it.
1: Yeah, Well, Eric, thank you again so much for uh, this book and and just the the lovely um, the recipes and and then connecting it to your own sourdough history and uh, just illuminating so many of these areas in my own mind where I I, I didn't I wasn't uh, knowledgeable on on the topic and it's a great read. I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, I will say Eric Eric's new book uh, Sourdough Culture: A History of Bread Making from Ancient to Modern Bakers is available now for pre-order. Uh, it fully releases on the fourteenth. Is that correct? Fourteenth yes, of this month. So so go find it wherever you get your books. And uh, oh yeah, be on the lookout. We're going to be doing a book giveaway um, with uh, your publisher. Um, I said they'd be excited to uh, do a book giveaway as well. And, uh, how, how can listeners connect with you, Eric?
0: Um, Google me, you Google Eric Pallant and you'll find me. Great. All right, Eric. Well, Hey, again, thank you so
1: much. I, I, again, this is one of those topics where I feel like I I could uh, take several hours uh, of your time (laughs) if you let me. So, but I'll, we'll, we'll cut it, cut it right here. And, um, I look forward to, uh, seeing how much people enjoy this book and, um, so thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for this book.
0: You're welcome, Michael, and, and thank you for uh, giving me the chance to talk sourdough with somebody who gets it. It was, a, <laughs> oh, understand it was a real pleasure. Pleasure's all mine.
1: Thanks for listening. The Sourdough Podcast is produced by Michael Hilburn and edited by Caleb Sexton. All music is by Weston Perry. Thanks again to our main sponsor of this episode, Tyler at Wiremonkey Shop. You can find their products and support the Bakers & Neat Fund created by Tyler by clicking on links in the show notes of this episode. And be sure to head over to sourdoughpodcast.com where you can find exclusive recipes from our guests as well as cookbook and gear recommendations, previous episodes, and more. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by purchasing a Sourdough Podcast t-shirt, coffee mug, or UFO alum. If you're strapped for cash, a five-star rating and review on iTunes would also go a long way, and you would help tremendously to share the podcast with others. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.